Hello and welcome back to a new season of the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracey and in this series we talk with doctors and health professionals who have forged all kinds of fascinating careers and pathways for themselves in and alongside medicine. This episode of the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast is brought to you by Blue Gibbon. Blue Gibbon provide doctors with world-class career opportunities described as the weird and the wonderful, including large events, high-profile government departments on remote offshore islands, in technology and corporate organisations and more. Relentless five-star service is guaranteed. Head over to bluegibbon.com to get in touch. Our guest for this episode, the second of our new series in 2020, is someone I've wanted to speak to on the podcast for a while. And so given the times we're now all living in with COVID-19, it's actually very timely. Most doctors and certainly GPs would be familiar with Professor Michael Kidd um, from his early career as a GP um, with special interests in HIV AIDS, mental health and Indigenous health, as well as research on a number of fronts. Michael's gone on to hold various senior academic health posts at major universities. He was the president of the RSUGP, the World Organization of Family Doctors, and he worked with the WHO as director of the organization's collaborating centre in family medicine and primary care. Since March this year, um, just as the impacts of the COVID-19 crisis were really starting to bite in Australia, Michael began his latest appointment as deputy chief medical officer working under Australia's chief medical officer, Brendan Murphy, and as well as him explaining how the timing of that appointment came about, we discuss what it's like to dive into a role like this as the world is being consumed by a pandemic um, as we're currently living through. For those of you uh, looking for escape from coronavirus, I'm glad to say we, it's not all about COVID. Um, we also talked about his earlier career and Michael had some really interesting perspective on issues like imposter syndrome and also managing mental health and burnout, which is especially timely for health professionals at the moment. He also had some advice for those of you out there who might be looking to explore public health or academic roles for yourselves. And he talks a little bit about the role of health communicators in a time like this. Um, So all that's worth sticking around for. Before we get to that one, just a quick reminder that the CCOAM conference, which was scheduled to be happening in June, has of course been postponed to the 12th and 13th of December and will be taking place at the Novotel Sydney Brighton Beach at this stage. If you've not already registered for that one, you can do so by heading over to creativecareersinmedicine.com, follow the links to the events page. While you're there, if you're not already, you can register to be a member of CCIM and follow those links to, uh, from my homepage to read all about the amazing ben- member benefits uh, that you can get, including some discounted member fees if you bundle your membership with your CCIM 2020 conference ticket. Again, that's all at creativecareersinmedicine.com. So anyway, here it is, my conversation with Professor Michael Kidd. Professor Michael Kidd, thank you so much for joining the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Great to talk to you. Now, as we're recording this, um, it's been a tumultuous week for many Australians, those in Victoria especially, um, with border closures, Melbourne back in lockdown as as COVID-19 cases continue to spike in that state. We're seeing um, enforced public housing lockdowns, um, people madly organising travel estate, uh, interstate travel um, while they could, and um, a lot of uncertainty um, and confusion and anxiety around what's going to be happening in the future. Um, it's hard to get away from, and particularly so for doctors and health professionals. Um, this is something that's obviously front of mind. And, and given your role, um, Michael, as, as Deputy Chief Medical Officer, perhaps we should start with COVID. Um, clearly, I imagine this is something that's been consuming much of your time and mental capacity since um, taking on your appointment um, as Deputy Chief Medical Officer within the Department of Health back in March. What 
I wonder if we could start by sort of having a bit of a talk about what, what was it like taking on a role like that right as we were sort of heading um, headlong into um, the grips of this pandemic that's essentially sort of unprecedented, certainly in modern times. I mean, were you ready for this? When Did you understand what you were getting yourself into? <laughs> well, I've, I've spent the last three years uh, mainly being based out of Australia, uh, based at the University of Toronto, where I've been the uh, chair and professor of family and community medicine uh, in what is the largest department of family and community medicine in the world. And I was also director of the World Health Organization uh, Collaborating Center for Family Medicine and Primary Care. And uh, I've had that role for three years. And then I had applied to uh, come back to Australia into this role as deputy chief medical officer and also as principal medical advisor on primary care reform with the Australian government and I've been appointed to that position at the end of last year before COVID-19 appeared and I was due to start in mid-April but, uh, but I got a call from uh, from Brendan Murphy in, uh, in mid-February saying, look, things are starting to hot up a bit. Is there any possibility you could come back a little sooner right. or maybe even just come back for a couple of weeks and help us get some things uh, underway? Sure. So. Uh, so I started uh, at the end of uh, February, uh, spent a week working in the department, and by that stage it was really clear that uh, the uh, the pandemic was spreading rapidly, that international borders were going to start uh, closing, mm. that uh, international travel was going to become very difficult. So I zipped back to Toronto for three days, packed up my apartment, packed up my office, said goodbye to everybody, and uh, came back to Australia into this role. And, uh, and of course, most of the role has been, as you say, uh, consumed by, uh, by COVID-19, uh, by the development and implementation of our national primary care response to uh, COVID-19, which, uh, of course, includes the adoption of telehealth for the whole of the population, yeah. uh, which uh, we thought we were going to be implementing over 10 years, but we ended up implementing over 10 days uh, with the great support of many colleagues from the AMA, the RACGP, ACRIM, and many other yeah. uh, stakeholder uh, organisations and professional uh, colleges and societies. And uh, but at the same time, we are still doing some primary care uh, reform work because I think that as we live through the pandemic and the experience of COVID-19, uh, some of the ways that we've done things are never going to be quite the same uh, again. And so uh, my, my appointment here is a joint appointment with the Australian National University where I have mm. uh, the Chair of Primary Care Reform. So we've actually been doing quite a lot of research at the same time uh, into pandemic preparedness, into uh, our national response and into uh, the lessons which are being learned as uh, as we all live through this very challenging and, and often very troubling time. And as you say, the last week uh, with the border closures between Victoria and New South Wales and the lockdown in Melbourne has been a very challenging week. How does the role, I mean, obviously you've spoken a little bit about you know, some of the stuff that you've been involved with and we'll, we'll sort of might flesh that out um, as, as we sort of chat about it. Um, but how does a role like that sort of work? Because obviously there are, you're not the only deputy chief um, of medical officer. There's, I think there's five of you um, at that level. They're, and you've all been quite visible and, and throughout this. What, it, it's quite a dynamic sort of a role, it seems like. Is there a sense of shared responsibility and teamwork and or given or 
can you sort of talk us through what, what's a, a busy sort of normal day for you at the moment, if, if there is such a thing? I'm not sure there is a normal day. Uh, <laughs> for anyone. Certainly, uh, Brenda Murphy, who of course was our chief medical officer and, and has now just moved into the role of being secretary of the Department of Health, but Brendan brought together a group of uh, doctors uh, and our chief nurse, uh, Alison McMillan, uh, to work together and to be able to address uh, the various components of the National uh, Department of Health response to COVID-19. So uh, Dr Nick Coatsworth has been uh, involved with the uh, the hospital preparedness and particularly uh, preparing our intensive care units and our ventilator capacity and the agreement with the private hospitals uh, and, uh, and a number of other measures. I've obviously been focusing uh, on the uh, healthcare system outside of the hospitals on mm. Primary care in uh, in medicine uh, and general practice, nursing, allied health, um, uh, but uh, but a, a range of other areas which we can talk about uh, as well if you like in, in palliative care and care for people with disability through the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, aged care and many others, uh, mental health. Uh, we've uh, had Jenny Sermon, who's a wonderful GP, uh, who is uh, from. Uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and uh, and she's been doing a lot of the emergency uh, preparedness with the National Incident Room. Uh, we've had uh, Ruth Vine, who is uh, former chief psychiatrist in uh, Victoria, who's uh, had a very uh, particular focus on mental health, and that, of course, will continue because we know that the short, medium and long-term mental health sequelae of the pandemic uh, are and will, be, uh, will continue to be uh, profound. Uh, and uh, and Alison McMillan as our as our chief nurse, uh, who's uh, also an expert in uh, in responding to uh, emergency uh, crises, uh, has uh, has been part of the team. So, what's a normal day like? Look, um, <laughs> if uh, if you're on the roster for the uh, breakfast uh, TV and radio programs, uh, they start uh, from seven a.m. But usually, we're being prepped by the uh, the media team. Uh, at least half was, an hour before. Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, uh, there's so much for you guys to be keeping on top of. Um, how yeah. it must be a very long day, and that's if that's the if that's uh, the early start. That, that, that's the start of the day, but then we usually get together as a group uh, around eight fifteen each morning, and we talk about uh, the emerging issues and what's happening, and brief each other on uh, each other's portfolios. Because right. of course, when you're doing media, you can be asked of about anything uh, yeah. in the. Uh, in the in the response, um, we have uh, we're members of the AHPPC, the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee, which involves the chief medical officer, the deputy chief medical officers, the chief nurse, and then the chief health officers in each of the states and territories. Uh, and we meet for two hours uh, each day, uh, seven days a week, right through uh, the pandemic. Um, uh, Developing up the uh, the national policy, developing the advice to the national cabinet, which of course is a a, a new uh, development uh, as well, with the prime minister and the premiers and chief ministers meeting together, mm-hmm. and uh, and then uh, we all have our own responsibilities. I've been particularly involved in working with uh, all the stakeholders, so I have. Uh, uh, meetings that right at the start, we're meeting three times a week uh, with representatives of the AMA, RSCGP, ACRAM, the Rural Doctors Association of Australia, NUCHO, the Committee of Presidents of Medical Colleges and others, um, and uh, and similar uh, meetings with uh, with the, the peak groups for allied health and 
uh, community nursing. Uh, lots of different projects uh, happening uh, in uh, in different areas uh, as we're again uh, working with stakeholders in developing uh, policy and programs. I've hosted to date uh, 50 webinars for wow. healthcare workers uh, across Australia, which has been a, a new um, a new thing for me to uh, to explore. <laughs> uh, and uh, at the same time, I've I've been seconded into other areas. So. I've been seconded to support the Attorney General in uh, industrial disputes in essential uh, industries, which we couldn't afford to have uh, locked down uh, sure. during the um, during the the lockdown period. I've been on Greg Combe's uh, industrial relations working party with the National COVID nineteen Coordination Commission, uh, again looking at uh, industrial relations issues um, in all sorts of areas, but mainly providing health advice, but health advice for people working on the ports, health mm. advice uh, for people uh, working on the airlines, health advice for people working uh, on the mining sites and on offshore uh, oil rigs, uh, health advice uh, for all sorts of different areas, which um, uh, as, a, as a GP, I found uh, very interesting, but also very challenging. Given, I guess, the profound and life-changing impact this crisis is having for so many people um, across, and you've, not, you've just listed a, a, a pretty broad range of, of areas that, that are feeling the impacts, um, there's also a lot of, you know, and no matter how well this thing is being, being, being managed and who's following, you know, and, and the expert advice um, is being listened to and, and how well things are being, being run, there's also a lot of commentary about what should and shouldn't be being, being done from, from everyone you can imagine at, at, at all kinds of different levels. How do you determine sort of what to listen to, what to tune out? How do you deal with the, the constant criticism that, that comes with a role at a time like this? There's a lot of second guessing going on from, from various quarters, aren't there? I think that uh, it's, it's not so much uh, criticism. We've had a lot of people who've been reaching out mm. to provide support uh, and advice uh, to different elements of the national response uh, to COVID-19. And it's actually been really wonderful seeing how people have come together to work together at a time of national emergency. One of the other roles which I have is co-chairing the National COVID-19 Health and Medical Research uh, advisory Committee, uh, which I co-chair with Professor Sharon Lewin from the Doherty uh, Institute, and uh, that's supported by the National Health and Medical Research uh, Council and uh, and involves some of the leading uh, minds in health and medical uh, uh, science uh, in Australia uh, and in uh, clinical service, all coming together, contributing their, their uh, expertise uh, uh, at no cost uh, to, uh, to the Commonwealth. Um, Everybody wants to make make a difference. Everybody wants to contribute, and uh, and that's been really wonderful. And you see that right across Australia. We've, we've seen it in the way uh, general practices have really stepped up uh, to look after the patients and their communities, and to very quickly adopt telehealth as uh, as part of the, uh, the the methods of communicating well, yeah. uh, with their patients. I was going to ask uh, you about that because we've seen so much fast adaptation, so much um, tr you know people training and learning new things. Um, you know, as as a GP yourself, is it is it inspiring to see see that level of 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 you know very fast uh, rollout of a lot of so much so much of this stuff that, that that's that's sort of underpinning the, the work that people like yourself are trying to do from the top down. Absolutely, and of course, there's been a real imperative to do it because uh, it's so immediate. Those, uh, 
yeah, those of our colleagues who themselves were vulnerable needed mm. to uh, remove themselves from uh, being at risk of uh, potential face-to-face -face contact with people who uh, might be infected with COVID-19. We moved to the whole of population uh, capacity for everybody to be able to reach out uh, to their GP um, for, uh, for medical care and advice when the entire nation went into lockdown. And, uh, you know, I think, again, because there is a national emergency, there is an imperative for us all to uh, to step up, to adapt very quickly. Uh, it has, of course, had its challenges, right? At the, uh, the early days of the pandemic arriving in Australia, we had like most of the rest of the world, uh, very serious shortages of personal mm. protective uh, equipment. Uh, people were having to uh, ration what they had available uh, and often improvise yeah. uh, in order to protect themselves, to protect uh, their, their staff uh, working in their healthcare settings, but also, of course, to protect their family, their loved ones. Mm. Uh, we had a, a shortage of uh, testing capacity with a shortage of test kits and the reagents uh, to do the tests. Uh, and uh, and so we had to uh, uh, limit uh, who uh, got tests uh, in the in the early days. Now, of course, uh, we do as much testing as we possibly can as part of the responses every time uh, we have an outbreak. Uh, a lot of people, of course, uh, uh, were feeling incredibly anxious. I think we were all feeling anxious yeah. uh, during during March, all having disturbed sleep and worrying about what was going to happen, worried about uh, our loved ones. And um, and so, uh, you know, everyone having to look after their own mental health and well-being, as well as that of their family members and the people that they were working with. Uh, it's been an incredibly stressful time uh, for, for everybody. Well, it's sort of really uh, highlighting that, that importance of self-care too, isn't it? I mean, is there anything that, that health professionals should be doing differently given the ongoing, I mean, it's a relentless, as you're saying, the, really the atmosphere that's, that's around this virus. Is there something, is there any sort of concrete advice or, or things that, that health professionals need to be doing differently because of what's going on at the moment as opposed to, to what they would normally be doing? Well, of course, we all need to keep up to date. Uh, with what's happening with, with COVID-19. Uh, fortunately, the, the Australian government, health.gov.au website, provides a single source of truth for uh, advice for people in Australia, including healthcare workers. Mm. Uh, we all need to be making sure that we are getting uh, adequate uh, rest and and time with our, our families, with, with our loved ones. Um, but it's... Um, it has been incredibly challenging, and I know that many colleagues have been working incredibly long hours uh, looking after their uh, patients. The move to telehealth hasn't necessarily meant a reduction in hours because uh, many uh, of our, our patients, especially our elderly patients living at home, often on their own, uh, have required additional uh, care and support uh, from us. And, uh, and of course, once the lockdown uh, initially stopped, uh, we had uh, a, a huge number of patients coming back for face-to-face -face consultations, which things which people had delayed having attended to during the lockdown period. And uh, and so uh, a big increased burden of work there as well. And of course, now we have colleagues in the city of Melbourne who are back in lockdown and having to provide that uh, care to their patients themselves, feeling very uh, anxious and often uh, angry and frustrated and sometimes despondent about uh, about being back in lockdown and at the same time having to support their patients who are going through that whole gamut of feelings uh, and emotions as well. So this is a very challenging time, uh, Andrew, in Australia as it is all around the world. I mean, you know, I know I know we feel 
somewhat blessed to be on our island nation mm. uh, at this time. But, uh, but COVID-19 is going to be with us most likely for some considerable time to come. We are likely to continue to get these outbreaks. We're all going to have to continue to be very uh, careful uh, in, in doing all we can to reduce the risk of transmission. Uh, and, uh, and we are going to continue to be uh, to, to be to be stressed and anxious uh, during the uh, during the months ahead. So we do need to look after our own health and well-being and each other's. So switch sort of gears a little bit. I, as you touched on before, you you talked about obviously that the, the primary um, uh, part of your appointment originally before COVID happening was advising on primary healthcare reforms, which obviously you're still. There's still, you, as you explained, there's still some of that work is going on you know, alongside everything else that, that we're seeing. Um, these roles are, are around affecting population health and giving your CV, senior academic, professional college roles, world health bodies like Wonka. Um, you've, of course, you're the president and, and your involvement with things like therapeutic guidelines and the online journals like the medical case reports. You've always been attracted to or certainly gravitated towards these kind of roles. Um, so to see you in the, in the centre of this during COVID is not really a huge surprise, I guess. But most doctors either don't get these kinds of opportunities, many don't seek them out for a number of reasons. I wonder if you could talk about your own sort of personal motivations towards these kind of big picture health roles and, and how that, these, that kind of work um, became a focus in your life. Yeah, thanks, thanks Andrew. I, I have to say, I, I was surprised to find myself in the position <laughs> that I'm in uh, at, at the moment. Um, and also really conscious of what a privilege it is to be in this sort of uh, role at the national level during a time of, of national emergency. Mm. Um, you know, I've worked as a general practitioner right through uh, my career. Um, I had a clinical appointment uh, when I was in Toronto for the last uh, three years. Um, I haven't been seeing any patients uh, since being back in Australia from the end of, of February, but um, I hope to be able to pick up some general practice work again mm. uh, once things settle down and return to whatever our new normal is going to be. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I started my, my career as as uh, a, a GP and as an academic um, uh, very early on. So I had the privilege of, of being able to uh, have uh, a, an academic registrar position when I was doing my general practice training. I was at Monash University. I did training in, uh, in research and a lot of that was uh, public health and primary care. Uh, focused. I uh, learned about uh, being a medical educator. Uh, worked with people like uh, John Murtar and uh, and others. And um, you know, I really enjoyed enjoyed that work. Uh, and it it led me into particularly getting involved with the RACGP um, as a as a registrar and being uh, invited to join uh, different committees. And I started. Uh, uh, being on uh, Australian government committees back in 1992 at the time when divisions of general practice were being created and mm. I was at the time I was chairing a committee for the ROCGP uh, which was called the National Computer Committee where we were looking at the future role that we thought that um, IT would have uh, in our day-to-day -day clinical work as as general practitioners and, uh, and I was asked if I'd chair a a government committee which was on uh, a steering group on how to uh, set down the uh, the reform agenda for computerising Australian uh, general practice. And so right. that was my introduction yeah. to 
uh, working with the Australian Government Department of Health. And since that time, I've either been a chair or a member of, uh, of Australian Government uh, committees right through that time. Uh, much of my clinical work uh, as uh, when I started as a GP was working with people with HIV. I ended up uh, chairing the National HIV Committee and uh, and then chairing the Ministerial Advisory Committee on um, on HIV and bloodborne viruses for a number of years. I've uh, chaired some uh, boards and councils for the Australian Government on uh, digital health uh, through the uh, through the years. And uh, yeah, and so I guess I guess uh, you know having that opportunity to uh, be involved and to provide one voice among many in the development of national healthcare policy. I've always found really interesting. It is an opportunity to try and improve the healthcare system so it's um, more equitable for everybody in our country and to address um, the, the disparities that we do see in uh, healthcare between uh, different groups and different populations uh, within uh, within our nation and of course then with the global work that I've been involved with, uh, particularly with the World Health Organization, I've had the opportunity to uh, again be a voice uh, to uh, to influence uh, the development of global healthcare policy and the rollout of, of global healthcare programs as well. And um, it's, uh, it's a bit daunting when you think about it, but what I bring into those roles is the experience of someone who uh, is working uh, as a general practitioner who understands the the stresses and challenges and joys of the work that we do as uh, medical practitioners, uh, understands the the challenges of delivering primary care to the populations that we that we serve as as GPs. and uh, and then when I was president of the World Organization of Family Doctors, I had the opportunity, to visit 72 countries during the three years of my wow. presidency and I examine in, in real close, um, uh, really closely the, the primary care systems in many, many different countries, both high, middle and low income countries. Mm and to see what was working well in different uh, nations and what wasn't and of course to gain insights into things that we might consider uh, doing differently uh, in Australian healthcare. I mean I'm really interested to sort of take, go back a step from from that even I mean given given where you've ended up I mean to, even to from did you ever see yourself as being you know you've just outlined a, a, a some amazing opportunities and things that you've been able to explore and things you've been able to learn and, and experience and see up close. But we, did you ever see, I mean, there must be a period where you, you know, you were so focused just on, on your, your, your responsibilities and learning as, as a registrar itself. Did you ever see yourself as, as sort of going down a, a different path or was there ever a, a point where you, you saw yourself as just being, you know, well, I, I, don't, I don't say just, but, but um, focusing more on, on the, the clinical side and, and being a GP day in, day out and, and, and managing a clinic and that kind of thing? Or was there always there needed to be some other element? Because I know when you, when you first started, I, I've been sort of reading some a bit more about your background in, in preparing for the for this conversation. I was reading about how when you first started as a GP, it was with the, uh, the, the Gay Men's Health Clinic of Victorian AIDS Council at the time. Is that, is that right? And that you had been providing community-based care to, to people with HIV and AIDS and that you would you would sort of maintain that special interest in, in HIV. I'm just 
wondering if if there was always because of your involvement with that is that where it started that's you know as well looking at the bigger picture yeah look i mean i i think i've been very very fortunate but many of us in general practice are we we have uh, we have these opportunities and you know one of the best pieces of advice i received was from the head of the department of general practice at monash when i was a registrar there professor neil carson he founded the department sadly he passed away just uh, just a month ago at the age of, of 92 but he had a profound influence on the development of, of the careers of many people in academic general practice across Australia and around the world. And, uh, and Neil, uh, he said to me, look, um, if someone comes to you and, and offers you an opportunity to do something different or to get involved in, in something different, um, always say yes. And, uh, and, and let's talk about it more. Let's talk about whether I'm the right person to do this. Let's talk about why you think I might be the, the person who can contribute. Um, if I'm not, let me help you to find somebody uh, who might be uh, the person who can assist. And by doing so, it, it opens up all sorts of doors. And our, our skills and experience as general practitioners is valued in all sorts of other settings and and the training that we get as general practitioners is also really good training for other work it, it trains you to be very good in communication skills it trains you to be able to un explain really quite complex issues in fairly simple language depending on um, the uh, the patient who you're talking to at the time it, it trains you on how to uh, rapidly defuse uh, escalating uh, situations. It uh, trains you to how to deal with uncertainty. Uh, it trains you to uh, to have a lot of empathy uh, in the work uh, that you do. And uh, and so I think that you know general practitioners, my experience, general practitioners make great uh, board members because of that breadth of experience and community understanding uh, that people can bring into a boardroom. Uh, GPs often are, are excellent educators and you know many of our medical schools rely very highly on uh, the GPs uh, uh, in the, the local community who provide extraordinary uh, experience for medical students and others and are great role models for people who are looking at what they want to do with their future career uh, in, uh, in healthcare and of course uh, our workers, general practitioners, many of us will work with the same uh, community for many decades. Others will uh, take their skills and will work in different settings in Australia, in different uh, parts of Australia and uh, and around the world. So, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the, the, the training that we get and then the experience that we get and, of course, the ongoing training that we get from our patients every single day uh, really uh, helps to helps to build a skill set which uh, which then can which then can be adapted in other areas one of the things that i wanted to ask you was about um in terms of uh, public trust as, as an issue in terms of our you know a, a key ingredient being a key, a key ingredient in, in affecting the kinds of global or population level health changes that um, roles like the one that you're in um, are setting out to achieve. And obviously we're living in a period where um, public trust in our institutions, our senior health experts and public health figures um, like yourself, whose job it is to help inform, to educate, update, um, to help guide the public through these kinds of, of periods and, and crisis have 
has never been really uh, more important, I guess. And at the same time, there's such a huge amount of, of misinformation and polarisation in, in, in the current media and social media landscape. It's not a new thing, um, but it has been developing over the years. We look at, you know, I think examples like the, the anti-vax movement, um, for example, or influencers like influencers like uh, Pete Evans and, and that the public health risks that can come with so many varied and often agenda-driven information sources. How do you see, I'm interested to know, how you see the role of, of public health experts and advocates and science and health communicators now versus, say, 10 or even 20 years ago? And, and how do you cut through in order not only to be heard but to be respected and make that difference? Yes, look, I, I think that, uh, that, that medical practitioners and, and health practitioners, well, we know that, um, that health practitioners in Australia are uh, the most respected and trusted uh, people uh, in our community. We've seen this from multiple surveys, uh, nurses, general practitioners, pharmacists uh, and others. Um, the population uh, does hold us in a position of trust and of course it's very important that we never abuse that trust uh, and, that, uh, and that we do act uh, honestly and we do act uh, with dignity and appropriately uh, in, in the work that we're doing. I think that uh, at a time of national emergency, as we are living through at the moment, uh, it's been very interesting to see uh, how the, the the chief medical officer of Australia, with Brendan Murphy, the chief health officers mm. in each of the states and territories, have become uh, figures of incredibly important uh, trust and sources of, of advice uh, for the the population, and uh, and. And in part, it's because we're doing what we do well as healthcare professionals. We are explaining uh, to people what we know and what we don't know uh, and helping to deal with the uncertainties uh, of, of what we are living through and experiencing, helping to explain uh, new pieces of evidence uh, when they appear and how this may or may not apply to uh, our context uh, here in Australia, just as we would be explaining to an individual patient who comes uh, with uh, information saying, you know, does this apply to me and my condition or my family member's uh, condition? And uh, and so I, I, I think, you know, we're we're, we're taking the role which we, we normally have working with individuals and we're applying that with the with the whole population uh, and uh, and I guess this is what public health uh, is about it is it is about looking after the the health of entire populations of individuals rather than one single person at a time you talk about you know the the level to which um, experts like the, the uh, medical chief medical officer and and, deputy, and his, his deputies um, have, have been sort of elevated at the moment um, and, you know, outside of, of uh, government appointees or people like yourself, there's, you know, there's, for example, people like um, Dr Norman Swan who you know, at, at, is one of those people at the moment. I think he's rated among the, the most trusted um, uh, and respected people in Australia right at the moment because of the work he's been doing um, in helping to try and explain um a lot of this to, to, to people to help them understand what that they need to be doing um, and what the, the impact of, of the decisions and actions that they're taking are. And yet in, in certain prominent corners of the media, there have been some who have been criticising his advice, questioning um, with, with little evidence, um, he, I, I would argue, perhaps um, his motivations or his possible agendas or allegiances and trying to undermine his own impartiality or credibility. I mean, do you ever 
is it frustrating um, to, to, to see some of the, the work that seems to go in the countering in the efforts of some of the stuff that you and, you and your colleagues have been doing and people like Norman Swan are trying to achieve? Look, I think that you know we live we live in a in a democracy. We live in a, a country where we have uh, a free media, and uh, and there will always be uh, commentators uh, coming in with different uh, viewpoints, and especially in areas of uncertainty, as with the sudden emergence of a new uh, highly infectious uh, disease, um, there will be different viewpoints as we build up the evidence base, as more and more research is carried out, as we understand uh, more about uh, this this particular virus and how it affects populations as we see uh, the the impact of, of different uh, outbreaks occurring in different settings and with different uh, populations of people around the country. Um, and at the same time, with this huge background level of uh, anxiety and uncertainty uh, among the public, and you know, I think I think it's been really tough over the last uh, few months because there has been this onslaught of media about uh, COVID nineteen, and it's been very hard to escape from. And one mm. of the pieces of advice that I've been providing to people is, you know, for, for goodness' sake, please turn off the TV, turn off the social media um, an hour or so before you go to bed. No wonder you're having difficulty sleeping uh, if this onslaught is, is happening all the time. And it is important that we're informed. Um, and also, I think it is important when there are uh, divergent uh, views about um, the, the evidence and, and trying to work out what, is, what are the best approaches, uh, that we do have these public debates. Uh, about it, and uh, and that's how we that's how we learn. That's how we 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 develop um, uh, our understanding is is listening to what other people have to say, listening to different perspectives, and of course, as a general practitioner, this is what you learn every day from your patients who come from all different walks of life and cast a different light on uh, on different aspects of of uh, healthcare experience and and healthcare delivery. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's it's very valuable and helpful to us. One of the um, key concerns a lot of doctors have, and, and this is not only one held by, by younger doctors, of course, this is around imposter syndrome, you know, that, that gnawing sense of anxiety. You know, just because you were talking about anxiety sort of um, reminded me I wanted to talk to you about this issue, but that anxiety that people get that they're not actually cut out to be doing their job, that, you know, any minute they could be found out or exposed or fail in some catastrophic way. You've done everything from working at the patient coalface um, to holding some very senior and influential roles that we've been talking about today. Is, is imposter syndrome anything, something that you've ever had to deal with? You, you, you mentioned it before that, that some of the roles you've walked into have felt a little bit daunting at times. Have you ever taken on a role and, and lost sleep worrying about how you're going to do it or whether you're, whether you're actually doing a good job? Look, I think, I think if we're honest, we all feel like that at different times uh, in our lives or when we find ourselves in a in an unusual or new uh, situation or we walk into a room full of uh, people that we don't know or even more daunting people that we do know through the media but have never actually met. Mm. Um, but it's important to reflect on why have you been asked to be there, to be in that room? Uh, what do you know? What do you contribute? What are the experiences that you've had? I've always thought it was it is really important uh, in any um, meeting that 
you're invited to or any committee that you that you join that you always have at least three things that that you want to get across uh, in the meeting or or to the group that you're you're talking to uh, based on your experience and you know I remember once uh, being invited as a a rather young academic to come and give a talk uh, to the um, a special committee of the NHMRC on genomics. This was as the human genome was starting to be uh, to be uh, much better understood, right. and and uh, and I was asked to come and give a talk about what uh, the, uh, the the human genome might mean for general practice. And you know, I walked into the room, and it was full of these amazing scientists. Uh, from across the country, very famous names, and I thought, gosh, what can I tell you people that you don't know? Yeah. And uh, and then it came to, well, you know, I can tell you what it's like being a general practitioner and explaining the very clever things that you do to my patients each day, and uh, and that's the uh, the skill that I bring uh, into that particular room and that particular setting. I'm not a genetic scientist uh, by any means. Um, so I think that uh, you know it is it is important to to reflect on things and and not to be afraid to to speak up uh, and to have your voice and to have your your opinions. You know, as as general practitioners, we we have a great insight into what happens in our communities and the challenges that so many people uh, have in their day to day lives and the diversity of experiences. Uh, of of Australians, and we bring that that knowledge uh, into the rooms and discussions uh, which we're involved in. And it again, it's a great responsibility to carry the voices of all the people who who you provide care and advice to uh, into these sort of settings. So I don't think people should feel like imposters. You should recognise that you're an expert uh, in your field. And uh, and not be afraid uh, to speak up uh, in in the areas that you you are knowledgeable. This sounds like you know obviously you, it's a very um, optimistic sort of view. Uh, it's sort of it's very refreshing to hear um, you speak about it that sort of way because it can be quite for a lot of people as as you say quite um, they can fr- can freeze and they can uh, it can be quite um, stymieing for them professionally and personally. I, have you? I was going to ask as well. Have you ever sort of regretted taking any on any, any particular role? You know, without being specific, I'm just sort of generally. How I many have you ever walked away from something or finished your job uh, thinking that that you were frustrated with with what was achieved or the what 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 was missed or that that there could have been more of a difference made for for whatever reason? Look, I, th- I think that happens to to all of us. You may get very invested in a particular project, and then other things happen outside uh, outside of your control, and that project doesn't end up proceeding, or it proceeds in a way which is very different to uh, the way you envisaged and the way you mm. thought things should should go. Um, that's uh, that's part of the game, particularly uh, when you're uh, being an advisor as a representative of your college or other organisations uh, to government committees and uh, and other 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 groups, um, but uh, you know again I am a bit of a glass half full kind of person yeah. and I do try and and look at well 
what have we learned through this experience? What can we take from this uh, to the next time that we try and, and do this? What learnings can we take that can maybe uh, shortcut some of the, um, the, uh, the things that we went through last time and, and fast track uh, some of the things which need to happen? And, you know, I've, I've been involved in, in, uh, in digital health uh, since the late 1980s when, again, when I went to Monash and... Mm. Uh, we were doing a research project evaluating the acceptability and effectiveness of the first electronic medical record system that was introduced into Australian general practices. And um, over the years, as we know, about 80% of, uh, of health IT uh, projects uh, over, the, over the decades have failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 20% uh, have, have worked. I've been uh, fortunate enough to be part of some of the ones which have been very successful, including when we uh, computerised Australian general practice and we were able to generate prescriptions uh, using computers and yeah. the government provided support to us. That was a very exciting project to be part of. The project that we're doing at the moment with rolling out uh, telehealth uh, is is probably the biggest change we've seen to the way healthcare is delivered under the Medicare benefits schedule since it was established mm. uh, back in the 1980s. But I also have my name attached to some digital health projects which have not uh, delivered uh, as well as we hope they might have. But there's always been lessons to learn uh, from those which didn't work. It's just obviously, as you said, you're. You are very much a, a glass half full person that comes across very strongly in, in so many of the things that you've had to say today. I just, is it, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you, how do you stay motivated and, and positive? I mean, obviously burnout is, is a, is a big issue for, for, for doctors. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, um, whether, you know, whether on a personal level or with your colleagues as well. I've spoken to a number of doctors who have strategies and ways of managing things to ensure they're still giving 100% to every commitment that they're taking on, whether it's through micro-focusing or whatever it might be that help you um, to, especially for people who, who with multiple responsibilities. Um, one of the people I spoke to um, last year on the podcast was Michael Bonning, who you, I'm sure you probably know, um, who he spoke about his how he sort of manages his various responsibilities and keeps all his plates spinning. I'm just curious with all the travel and the work and the meetings and the papers and the various commitments that you have, how do you strike a balance for yourself um, and, and get through the, the tough times? Well, I think, I think there's a number of, number of elements there. I mean, clearly uh, our lives are not just our work. So it's very important that we have balance in our lives. I'm very fortunate to be in a very happy and, and supportive marriage. Uh, I have wonderful family members who, who are incredibly supportive. I have wonderful friends. Uh, who provide me with a lot of uh, advice and counsel and uh, and also are not afraid to tell me when I'm uh, doing or saying the wrong thing. Uh, I think that uh, it's very important to uh, keep yourself as, as physically and mentally fit as you possibly can, as you say. Uh, unfortunately, my exercise of choice is swimming and it's been difficult to yeah. uh, find pools which are open uh, during the uh, the pandemic. So instead, I've been doing a lot of uh, walking and, and fairly slow bicycle riding. <laughs> uh, I think it's really important to monitor your own uh, energy levels and make sure that you don't become excessively fatigued because when we are very tired, uh, that's when we tend to lose some of our our bounce and our endurance and our 
resilience and uh, so make sure that uh, that you know I, I make sure that I get enough uh, rest each day even with these days which may start uh, with media prepping at half past six in the morning if that's happening uh, tomorrow morning I'll be off to bed quite early uh, the uh, the night before uh, and uh, and also making sure that you have some downtime uh, during each week you know even even though we have been meeting uh, daily uh, throughout the pandemic with the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee uh, on the uh, the day on the weekend, which is my down day, the rest of the day, uh, I'm doing my best just to spend with my my husband and uh, and doing uh, enjoyable things and trying to turn off uh, from uh, from what ha is happening in the rest of the world. Um, so we all we all develop our ways of of learning how to manage and learning how to cope. I think it is really important, uh, as you say, Andrew, that we are able to uh, gauge for ourselves, but also we rely on the people around us to say, mm, Michael, you're looking a bit tired. You're getting enough rest. Are you okay? Do you need to have a talk? Uh, we reach out to each other and support each other as well. It seems a lot easier to to, to be able to broach the, this topic than, than, I mean, from from the outside, obviously I'm not an experienced um, doctor myself, but have you, do you, do you, have you seen that in, in your own experience that it has become easier and more normalised to be able to talk about these things, as you say, and, and, and help 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 other other medical professionals and, and when they might look like they're needing help oh, absolutely you know one of the uh, the things that I've done that has brought me great joy and fulfillment has been the nine years that I spent as a board member on beyond blue and seeing how uh, through the initiatives of beyond blue and and many others uh, the the discussion about mental health has become, uh, much more something which we're able to do rather than people needing to hide at the stigma and discrimination uh, which goes alongside mental illness has been really tackled and uh, and I think that that's produced a much more healthy uh, environment for absolutely everybody. Uh, you know, I, I think it is really important for us as as health professionals that we we are aware that uh, that we are at increased risk of uh, of um, mental health uh, concerns and uh, that uh, that we do all do all that we can uh, to look after our own mental health and well-being, but that we look out for each other as well and um, make sure that we are supporting and protecting each other. And especially at a time like this, when so many of us are under what at times may seem like really intolerable levels. Uh, of stress at, at the moment, you know, my concern is really for our colleagues in Melbourne, uh, as we said right at the outset, Andrew, mm. people who are themselves, find themselves back in lockdown, finding themselves in a situation of high levels of community uh, transmission of, of COVID-19 and, uh, and with uh, patients who are, again, very angry, frustrated, despondent, isolated, uh, often alone. And, uh, and of course, we do feel a huge level of responsibility uh, for our patients who do trust us for their care and advice. And, uh, and you know, we, we need to be looking after ourselves and each other at the same time. Look, one last question. I know because I, as we sort of touched on before we, we started recording this this um, this chat, that you you could you know, due to the nature of your work, you, you could uh, be uh, be dragged onto the phone with, with the minister or whoever it might be that that um, because of the roles and responsibilities that you have. So I do really appreciate you making the time for us this afternoon. But one last question before I let you go um, was around 
what advice you might give to, to doctors who, who, who may be interested in exploring opportunities to get involved in, in public health or academic um, health roles, um, whether they're young and looking for a, a pathway into uh, the sort of opportunities and career that, that you have had and, and that others like like you have have um, experienced, and or whether it's for, for, for more experienced doctors who, who might be looking to, to broaden their experience and, and, and take on new challenges. Yes, look, I think that uh, if people are interested in public health roles and, uh, and you're a medical graduate, um, do some further training to do a postgraduate uh, course in, uh, in public health to build up your knowledge. Uh, if you have the opportunity to spend a bit of time uh, working with a public health uh, agency or, or a group, uh, uh, do that as well. Um, I think that look at the skill set that you have and look at the areas where you may need some further training. The most important area where I got further training as a registrar was in public speaking because I found it very difficult standing up and speaking in public. The thought of going on national television or speaking at a press conference with a media scrum would uh, would have caused me incredible levels of anxiety. Wow. And so I went and did uh, did some training in public speaking and, and I think I'm a little bit better at it now than I was uh, way back then. Uh, but look at, look at the skills that you want to develop, look at the... Mm sort of a career path that you're interested in, seek out some mentorship, find someone whose career you think, gee, I'd like to be like her, I'd like to have a career like she's had, and, and reach out to that person and see if they'd be willing to sit down for half an hour and just have a talk to you about where they, what they did with their career, a bit like we've been talking about now. And, uh, and you know, people are very generous uh, with their time if someone who's young and keen and enthusiastic reaches out and says, you know, I want a career like your career. Can, can we have a talk about that? Or I want to do some research in the area that you're uh, a national or world leader in. Um, is it something that I could come and have a talk to you about? Uh, people will, will provide you with, with support and assistance. That way you build up your networks, you get in your own mind the sort of areas that you might want to focus on more in the future. Well, look, you've been also very generous with your time this afternoon. So once again, thank you for, for, for your time, Michael. Thanks, Andrew, and, uh, and my best wishes to all of you listeners. Huge thanks once again to Professor Michael Kidd for his time. Um, given his schedule and the pressure he's role at the moment, it really was wonderful that he was able to make time to have a chat um, in what's been a fairly hectic week. Um, as I said at the top, this episode of the podcast was sponsored by Blue Gibbon. Head over to their website at bluegibbon.com. That's B-L-U-G-I-B-B-O-N.com uh, to find out more about all the kinds of locum opportunities and more that they can make possible for you. Um, also, before I go, another quick reminder to head over to the CCIM homepage. If you haven't already registered for CCIM 2020, the um, conference that's happening in December, you can do that there. You can also read more about the membership program and how you can sign up and secure your benefits. Do all that at creativecareersinmedicine.com. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back soon with more interviews and episodes.